Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help you bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and just figure out life. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our Young Adult Services, or at our General Services. We hope you enjoy. All right, so uh, today I want to reintroduce you to the author of our book of Romans, and who, someone who probably gives the very best advice spiritual advice, emotional advice, and even relational advice, probably other than Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. And so I'm going to introduce you to Paul, our main guy, the guy that wrote the book of Romans um, today. So he was born uh, the Jewish parents in a town called Taurus, which is in modern-day southeast Turkey. Uh, when he was born, his parents gave him the Hebrew name Saul, which we know as Saul. But you probably know him by his other name and uh, a more famous one, which is Paul or Paulus. Now, his parents probably named him Saul after the very first king of Israel, a guy named King Saul. If you know the story of David and Goliath, he grew up watching VeggieTales, whatever it is, you probably know the story a little bit, right? Now, uh, he changed his name, or rather his Roman name was Paulus. I don't know why he picked that. Um, it actually translates little or short, which would be like a weird like, like, like adjective. That you'd like, or it's like a weird like, way to like, identify yourself. Like, I am ugly. Like, call me ugly. I am short. I am little, right? That was, like, that was like the way that, that's what Paul means. It means little or short. Now, uh, there is one source in the ancient world that tells us what his physical appearance looked like. It describes him as short, bow-legged, balding with a unibrow. So probably kind of not like the Brad Pitt of his day, probably more like Danny DeVito, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, that's kind of what I, I was watching the movie Twins. Raise your hand if you've ever seen the movie Twins before with Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, um, Danny DeVito. No one has seen the movie? All right, you're going, you're going home today, and I'll give you my Netflix login if you don't have one. You're watching this movie, right? So it's this, it's this story. This isn't even part of my sermon, but here we go. So there's this, this story where there were twins. It's Danny DeVito, if you know who that is. He's like this tall. Do you guys know who Danny DeVito is? Carly, do you need to show them a picture of Danny DeVito? Do you guys know who Danny DeVito is? Okay, he's like this tall, unibrow. It's Paul, okay? And then you have Arnold Schwarzenegger. If you don't know who that is, I can't help you, all right? He was the governor. All right. Um, this, uh, this little man, though, had a large impact. Uh, what we know of Saul of Tarsus was he was very religious and he was a very educated man. In fact, scholars believe that Paul was probably one of the most, if not the single-handed, most intelligent person on the planet during the time that he uh, lived, which is kind of crazy to think about. Some scholars believe he had between two and three modern PhDs, a pretty intelligent guy. He studied Judaism under one of the most famous rabbis of all time, a man named Gamil, who was also, and simultaneously, probably hated Christians more than anybody. Like, a Gamil hated. It was anti-Christian. He has a famous prayer that says this about Christians. Let there be no hope to them who apostatize from the true religion, and let these heretics, how many there be, all perish in a moment in hell. So little to say, uh, Gamil, uh, the rabbi, hated Christianity. Well, we know of Paul in his early days, he took these words to heart because he was the Christian terrorist of his day. Before he was for Jesus, he was for jihad, and I like to think of it that way. And he made it his mission, actually, in life to exterminate Christianity. That was like Paul's mission, right? I want to exterminate and squash this movement called Christianity. In fact, he's accredited with creating and citing the very first mob that killed the very first Christian martyr in the book of Acts, a man named Stephen. In the first century, I was thinking about this, it really costed you something to follow Jesus, right? In, in the first century, it probably cost you your life uh, to follow Jesus. I was in, uh, in Turkey many years ago, and um, actually to a place that Paul had probably traveled to, and uh, I did this Footsteps of Paul tour where I went to all of the islands and places in which Paul had written letters to 2,000 years ago. And so I'm in Turkey, and uh, I'm in the city, and they have this thing called the Bima, the Bima seat, and it's this exalted altar. And here's what's wild, that they shared this story that 
Caesar did something interesting within the Roman government, and that is you had to swear 100% allegiance to him as God, and if you didn't, you would be beheaded or killed instantly. And so they would take you off into these bema seats. It was a judgment seat is what it was called, or um, it was, in, a, it was in, in their court system, and you would stand there, and you would kneel over like this, and you would have to say something really simple, Caesar is Lord. That's all you had to say, Caesar is Lord. And if you said that, you, were, you could walk off the bema seat, and the judicial system and the higher-ups judged you as just. That's the right thing you're supposed to say. So you walk up to this place, and I'm, I'm just walking around, kind of looking at this exalted platform, and I'm kind of like, okay, this is kind of interesting. And then the, the pastor starts telling us about most likely, or what, what was certainly happened on this bema seat. He said, men, women, and children that, that were Christians wouldn't say that sentence. They couldn't because they swore allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is Lord. And so they, they wouldn't. They would say, Jesus is Lord. And immediately there was an executioner that would chop off their head in the exact place that you're standing. And that's just crazy to think about that all these families, husbands and wives, and bringing their kids up there are standing on this place and, and they're not going to say the line. They're going to say, Jesus is Lord, knowing that their children are about to be murdered next to them, and then they're going to be murdered as well. Like, man, I, I hope that I have that type of faith, right? But like, dude, if I'm holding my little girl like Noel, like, like whoa, it's wild, right? In the first century, it most certainly cost you your life. In the book of Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said to pick up your cross daily. Now, like, we hear that, and like, what does that mean? Like, like, I have to work a job I hate? Like, what does that mean? No, no, no. It means like for them, it meant that they actually had to pick up their cross most likely and go be crucified that day when they said yes to Jesus Christ. Can you imagine being baptized? Like a pastor's like, I baptize him, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You dunk up and like, here's your cross. Now you go die on the hill. It's like, that's crazy. And that's actually how Christianity grew. It's crazy to think about, right? So in the first century, it most likely cost you your life to follow Jesus Christ. And today, it probably won't cost you your life, at least in modern-day America, but it may cost your livelihood, right? It may come in the form of rejections from others or be mocked or ridiculed for your beliefs. I think we're living in an era, in a culture, which is becoming increasingly hostile to the biblical worldview and faith. For those of you guys that don't work at a church, and there's only a handful of us here that probably do, um, you guys work wherever you work, and most likely probably not Christian environments, secular environments. Just identifying as a Christian probably, you probably lose social capital. It may be a little more difficult now to climb the corporate ladder. It wasn't always this way, but it is that way now. And so today, it's going to start costing you something probably to follow Jesus Christ. That's actually something that excites me because the lukewarm followers, the people slow down the mission of Jesus Christ, probably aren't sitting in churches anymore. Here's what we know. 55% of the church hasn't come back since COVID. There was, I don't know, four or 5,000 people that used to attend our weekend service. Young adults was three times or double the size of this, right, um, before COVID. After COVID, churches all across America have shrunk in size. That's actually something that excites me because I like this group and I like our church better now than I did with more people because a lot of lukewarm followers that weren't actually serving, tithing, getting involved or whatever it was, just a lot of consumers. And so today, I think it's starting to cost us. That's actually something that excites me because it, it, it hardens our faith and makes us group together and do life together. But anyways, Paul was on a mission in the first few chapters of Acts. It talks about his mission to end this movement of Christianity, to persecute Christians like you and me, or as followers of the way is what it was called back then. It wasn't labeled Christianity until uh, um, a little bit later in Antioch. But anyways, in the book of Acts chapter 9, we see Jesus interrupt Paul's narrative. Jesus' post-resurrection and post-ascension into heaven kind of appears to... Uh, Paul on a road to Damascus, and he's on a donkey, literally kicks him off his donkey, and he goes blind for three days. Ultimately, in this moment, Jesus reveals to him who he is, and Paul in this moment realizes that it was his zeal for God that actually caused him to go to war with God. 
Now you fast forward a few chapters into Paul's life and he writes most of the New Testament. And God uses Paul as the instrument to share his message in a way that not even his disciples got to do so because Paul becomes the most influential person in human history other than Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has written most of the New Testament that we read today. 13 out of the 27 books. If you include Hebrews, which you don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but it has some Pauline literature structure. We think it's Paul, but we don't really know. 14 out of the 27 New Testament books. Now, for me, the conversion of Paul is one of the greatest evidence that Jesus is who we claim to be. There is no other reason that a man like Paul would start worshiping Jesus. I mean, he lost everything. He was a wealthy man. He lost his wealth. He lost his friends. He lost his status in Jewish society. And eventually, he lost his life for following Jesus Christ. What would possess a man that had everything that he had the ancient, uh, instead of the American dream, it was the Roman dream? What would possess a man to abandon all of that, including his life eventually, if Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be? Scripture tells us that Paul, because of his faith in Jesus Christ, was flogged a total of five times. If you guys know the Easter narrative, you probably maybe know what flogging is. Flogging was, was a piece of wood, and there would be an executioner um, or a punisher that had, a, that had that little like baseball bat. Off it was a cat of nine tails, which just leather strips with razor blades basically on the bottom or on the back of them. And they were to whip the person 39 times. And it would oftentimes wrap around their stomachs and cause a laceration around their stomach, and their organs would fall out. I mean, it was a horrific and painful torture, and it led to the death of many people. Now, why 39 times? That's kind of perplexing. Why? Because it was believed on the 40th time the person would die, and so they'd bring you right up to the brink of death and no further. This happened five times to Paul, which is crazy to think about. Uh, he was beaten with bats a total of three times, and then he was stoned one time. That doesn't mean he got high with his friends. It meant that people picked up rocks with the intentions of ending his life, right? In fact, if Paul were to take off his shirt, his, story, his body would tell a story of how passionate, devoted, and committed he was to the Lord, and about a God that saves and communicating that to you and me. Why? Why was Paul so ambitious? Why was Paul so devoted? And, and really, like, he suffered tremendously because he said yes to Jesus Christ. Why? Because he knows. Paul knows that if you follow Jesus, this is the closest to hell you're ever getting. However, he also knows that if you don't follow Jesus, this is the closest to heaven you are ever going to get. And so he's passionate about you and I and we knowing about that there is a God that saves, but about the gospel. The truth is, what does the gospel teach us? Simply that you cannot save yourself. That's what, that's what time and time and time and time scripture teaches us, that you're not mistakers and need a second chance, that you are sinners who desperately need a savior, me included, we, all of mankind. It teaches us that we cannot save ourselves, that these laws of God, the perfection of God's laws, show us that we are separate and far from God, and there's nothing that you and I can do to get ourselves to God. That's what we kind of talked about last week, that you can't save yourself. Now, there's the reality, this fallenness that we all know and that we all experience, that this are, we aren't the way we want to be, the world isn't the way that it should be, causes us to kind of look for solutions. And I call this kind of self-salvation. You're going to talk about this in your groups in a second. But I've looked and I was thinking through what are ways in which I think people try to self-save society, self-save themselves. And the one that pops out to me most within our age group, I'm older than most of you guys, but um, is probably marriage. Like I can't tell you how many young adults I know that believe that if I could just get that person, just get that guy, that girl, if I could just get married, my life is going to be complete. Like, I'm going to be whole. Like, like, it's going to be like a fairy tale. And look, marriage is great. I love my wife and I love my daughter, but it is not the thing that's going to bring peace to your soul by any means. It is a great addition to a life, but when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing because it's placed in the wrong place in your life. So I think, I think marriage. Another one I think is family, right? Like if, especially for those of us that maybe grew up with not the best family situation, you think one day you're going to have a family and everything's going to be 
perfect. Everything's going to be the way it should be, that life is going to be great. Families are great, but they're not meant to save you. They're not God. Maybe it's money. Maybe for you, if you just ask, if I could just get an insert, whatever that is, money, marriage, family, success, recognition, whatever it may be, accomplishment, then my life would be whole. It would be full. But then we want a society level. Society can observe that things are wrong with the world around us. And so what are the solutions they offer? Education. If we could just bring up the literacy level, if we could get more people to go into college, then life is going to be better. Well, that hasn't really worked either. If we can just bring up the poverty level, if no one, no one was poor any longer, if we could bring, if people could just be healthy, whatever it may be, see, the society also offers, is trying to offer solutions for this fallenness, but Scripture tells us what's the real solution to the fallenness of mankind. In the book of Philippians chapter 2, also written by Paul, here's what he says about Jesus. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though there's a form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is he teaching us here? Simply this. That the one who is in heaven came down from heaven to bring us back to heaven with him. The one that was from heaven came down from heaven to bring us back to heaven with him. That the only solution to your fallenness and mine, our separateness from God, was that there had to be one that was from heaven that came down to the earth to bring us back up with him. That is the, simply the message of the gospel. And so today, we're going to rediscover this reality in chapter 7, but also, also this truth that believers are still going to struggle with our fallenness. What do I mean by this? Well, let me kind of define this. I, I talked about this last week, but there wasn't many of you guys here because I guess there was some game going on or something. But anyways, um, I'm going to kind of redefine it for like maybe one minute. Fallenness. What do I mean by fallenness? Well, it's this idea that God has chosen to save our souls, but we still live in a fallen body with distorted desires. Like, do Christians still die? Yes. Do Christians still get COVID? And do Christians still get cancer? And do Christians still deal with addiction? And do Christians still steal X, Y, or Z? The answer is yes. Why? Because God is saving your soul, but for some reason, he's allowed us to still occupy a body that's fallen, which means that the moment one is saved, let's say they're addicted to porn, alcohol, heroin, whatever it may be, if they say, and they get baptized, and they say yes to Jesus, are they still addicted to those things, chemically speaking? Yes, they are, because they still live in a fallen body. So you're going to hear me talk about fallenness. More specifically, I'm going to talk about the flesh. Paul talks about the flesh and the old man. I'm going to define this for us right now. Whenever I talk about fallenness, whenever I talk about the flesh or the old man, those are the words that Paul uses, he's talking about our sin nature, that every believer still has a sin nature, which is this impulse and desire to not honor and follow God. And that's what Paul's going to teach us today. But simultaneously, the second you say yes to Jesus Christ, he implants something different within you. We're going to talk about that in one second. Follow with me in verse 14. We're doing 14 through 25 today. It says this, for we know that the law is spiritual. I want you to highlight that. But I am of the flesh sold under the sin. Let me kind of recap again last week's teaching. So over here is fallenness is your flesh. This impulse, right? I've been a Christian for, what, 13 or 14 years, and I still have desires that I shouldn't have. I still think thoughts I shouldn't. I still say things that I shouldn't do. I talked about that last week, right? Because I still have a fallen nature. But God simultaneously on this side, the second someone says yes to Jesus Christ, God gives us his Holy Spirit and he gives us something called a divine nature. I need to cl like clarify this because in no sequence of events do you and I ever become God. And so the philosophers and theologians I was reading, they use the word divine nature. I wish they used something different because it's kind of perplexing and kind of confusing. So over here we have the sinful nature, your fallenness, 
This is the reason you still do things you know you shouldn't do. Watch things you shouldn't do. Say things you shouldn't do. When someone cuts you off, you still get angry. Fallen nature. Over here, your divine nature. Let me describe this. It is not that you are God. It's that you start wanting what God wants in this world and in your life. Not my will, but your will. Non-believers don't care. They have one nature. They don't care what God wants. They don't. As believers, we have these two natures now. And only believers have two natures. Every other person that isn't in a relation with Jesus Christ has one nature, a fallen nature. Believers have a fallen nature and a divine nature. The divine nature wants what God wants. The fallen nature is kind of egotistical, self-centered, doesn't want what God wants. I guess we'll classify it this way. I said it this way last week. Your fallen nature or your flesh wants to make you God. Everything revolves around you. Your divine nature wants you to make everything about God. Now, if you were like me, and Paul's going to talk about this in a second, you're going to realize that you kind of have these angels and demons, right, where one is pulling you back to your old life, back to your old habits, back to your old friend group, back to whatever it may be, and then you have the new one over here saying, God, God has more for you, and you're, you're, you're kind of in this weird tension, and that's what Paul's going to kind of bring the light today, but he's also saying something else. He's saying that this reality, in light of the teaching that he gave us in the last few weeks, kind of shows us that we're not perfect, that we're imperfect people trying to follow a perfect God, and so we're going to get things imperfect. We're going to mess up. He teaches us last week that kind of the straightness of God's law shows us the crookedness of our life, that we need saving, that we're not mistakers, need a second chance. You are a sinner who needs a savior. I want you to follow with me in verse 15. It says this, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very things that I hate. This makes me feel a little better about myself when Paul is like, I mean, like, he's like the greatest follower of Jesus in all human history, and he still goes, look, I still do things I know I shouldn't do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. He's kind of saying, like, look, like the, the, like the, the law of God, this, the Ten Commandments, the 625 laws of the Old Testament, I can realize that I'm not living in accordance, but I can at least realize that the, that the law is good, and, and that makes me bad. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I'm going to pause for a second. Um, today, we're going over the most debated and most challenging passage probably in the entire New Testament. Um, I read tons of different commentaries, listened to tons of different pastors teach on this, and some of it is going to be kind of confusing. And so, again, like, especially if you're new to this whole Jesus thing, like, look, we came in on like a super intense night. Please ask questions. Like, I, I especially for those of you guys who are new, God is big enough for your questions. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I've already admitted that, but I'll try my best to answer your questions. And so ask questions, because what we're about to hop into may be a little bit kind of confusing. A few things here, though. Number one, Paul's not denying responsibility. Rather, he understands that he's acting against his new nature as a new person in Jesus Christ, that whenever he does things that don't pull him closer to God, he's not acting in accordance with that other nature that God has given him. The Bible calls this the new creation as well. So whenever I do something I know, I lie, I steal, I watch something I, 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 that I shouldn't do, I'm not actually acting in accordance with who I know, I should, with who I know and how I should live. Um, I've given you this example before. Like, um, the Bible says not to dishonor God's name or to use his name in vain. Now, like, the way that maybe you heard that passage interpreted was like when you, stub your, when you stub your toe, don't use God's name in vain. Don't use it as a cuss word. That's not exactly what it means. Right? What it means is don't identify with Jesus and then live a life not in accordance with that identification. And the illustration I've given you before is when I was, um, let's say I was in football back when I was in high school, and I wore the jersey, and, I, and, and it was on an away game, and we were at, I don't know, In-N-Out or Subway or whatever it was, 
The coach would always say one thing. While you're wearing this jersey, act appropriately or with responsibility or something because what you do out in the world honors or dishonors the school name, the football team. That's the same for those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus, right? That at, as we are in our workplace, as we are in our friends, even as we are in our dating relationships, whatever it may be, you can honor or dishonor the name of God by your actions, attitudes, and even thoughts. That's what that's being talked about there. And what he's saying is when we dishonor that name, yes, even as Christians, we're not living in accordance with who we say we actually are. And that's the truth. Like, there's moments in which I dishonor the name of God because I'm not acting in accordance with what I know and who I should be. And that should continue to draw me towards repentance. Repentance means to submit myself once again and go, God, I messed up. I need your forgiveness. So here's what this means and what Paul teaches us, that a Christian must be someone who simultaneously owns their sin. It's a responsibility that I am flawed and messed up, yet simultaneously disown it. God, I want to be better. Can you give me your power to be better? Not choose those things any longer. Follow with me in verse 18 through 20. For I know the law, nothing good dwells within me. That is in the flesh. Remember, that's that nature we talked about over there. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This may be the most relatable verse in all of scripture. Paul's basically saying, I know what I should do. I know how I should do what I'm supposed to do, and I know how I should live, but I lack the power to choose what I ought to do, and I inevitably choose what I shouldn't do every single time, time and time and time again. Paul elsewhere in the book of Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 speaks again towards this reality, says this, for desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. See, Paul in these verses is kind of just being realistic. He's telling us that we're not going to be perfect, and we have two competing natures within us trying to get our attention to choose them. But you can have victory over your addictions. You can have victory over your sin if you lean into God's power given to you by his spirit and not your own power. He teaches us next. He says this, So I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive of the law of sin that dwells within my members. Here's what he's teaching us. If you try to follow God without God, if you try to follow God without an actual flourishing relationship with God, not that you sat in a church and heard a pastor speak, not that you have read a devotional one, two, or three times, not that you have prayed maybe for five minutes every single week, but if you actually have a real flourishing relationship with God, I'll say it this way. If you don't have a flourishing relationship with God, all following God, coming to church, listening to a pastor speak, all it's gonna make you do is feel terrible about yourself as you realize how much further and you need to climb and how far you actually are away from God. That's what Paul teaching us. Paul was a Pharisee. Now, what is a Pharisee? A Pharisee was the top-tier religious leader of Jesus' society back in the day. They were the people that were expected to be perfect, and they tried to be perfect. And what Paul is saying is if the only power in yourself is yourself, you will never experience the lasting change that God desires for your life, and you will be empty. That the power of self is not enough to follow God, and that's what Paul discovered. That if you try to follow God by yourself, all it does is make you empty inside. Let me kind of give you an example of something I see happening. There's this interesting thing right now that's happening within Christendom. There's a group of uh, Christians that are in this philosophical system called deconstructionism. I'm not going to jump into the, the critical theory of it, but I'll at least talk about the, the, the Christian deconstructionism that I see. They are Christians deconstructing their faith 
and coming out the other side of this self-evaluation, believing that Christianity and Jesus doesn't actually offer the abundant life that it claims that it can offer you. The truth of the matter is, is a bunch of people following the morality of Jesus without a relationship with Jesus. And that caused them to be bitter, angry, and empty. And of course it did. Because the worst type of person, the worst type of person is to be an almost Christian. You know, you, you know enough about the Bible and about God's law to feel bad about yourself, but you don't know enough about God to see how loved you are. So you simultaneously feel convicted of your sin, but yet you don't experience the love of God, and so you're in the worst and most bitter place possible. And this is the reason that most church-going people, they walk through the doors, they experience some life change, and they leave. And they leave because they think it's just a list of do's and don'ts, not an abiding relationship with the God of the universe. Let me say this again because this is important. If you experience dryness in your faith, if you're like, where is God? There's a plethora of reasons for that, but one of them could be that you were trying to follow God without the power of the Holy Spirit within you. That's what we're going to be talking about actually in weeks to come. We're going to do a study on pneumatology, which is the study of, of God's Spirit and how, and how it flourishes within us and how it draws us closer to Him. You cannot live the life that God has asked of you alone. You need to lean into his, into his Holy Spirit by asking God, would you give me the strength to choose you today? Let that be your prayer every single morning when you wake up. God, I realize that within my fallen nature, I'm going to continue to choose things that are destructive for my life. Would you, by your power, empower me to live the life, God, that you've called me to live? Why? Because the worst type of person is being almost Christian. You know enough about God's law to feel bad about yourself, but you don't know enough about God to see how loved you actually are. So Paul realized this. As a Pharisee, I'm trying to do all these good things without the author of good in my life. And so he says in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am. He said, this is kind of a statement of desperation. This is Paul saying, the law revealed to me how imperfect and broken I am. And as I look, if I, as I look inward in the self and personal performance for salvation or even value and identity, it's a, it's a living hell. Wretched man that I am. And then he says, who can deliver me from this, this tension, from this, this war? Notice that Paul finally turns to someone outside of himself to help himself. He's given up on himself and his ability to save himself. Let me say it this way, and I put this in your notes. The greatest problem I think this generation has, it's been sold the lie that the answers to life and even salvation is found within you, that you are the solution to the problems that you're facing. Like, <laughs> you hear this in pop culture, like, by follow your truth, by follow your truth. What does the Bible say is natural to us? Nothing good. And we're, we're in a society now that's literally saying, find what's inside you. And here's Jesus saying, there's nothing good inside you. What did he say over here? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What do we hear in pop culture today? There's a, kind of this self-salvation through inward reflection. And there's a lot of Christians that are getting pulled in this direction too. This is the whole deconstruction movement that I was telling you guys about. But we're learning, and what people are teaching us today in pop culture is if you could look inward, if you could develop yourself educationally, financially, relationally, and even emotionally, you could save yourself. The truth is, this is the tactic the enemy of your soul uses on you today, that you can save yourself. Even more than that, that you can bend the universe to your desires. And what's being really popular with Gen Z and even millennials is kind of this like law of attraction manifesting type of stuff. Right, that you can literally bend the material world to your desires and your world through manifesting what you actually want in life. What does that actually sound like? If you know your Bibles, it sounds like Genesis chapter 3. You can be God. It's a lie. You can't bend the universe to your, to your desires. Now, your hard work can actualize certain dreams, 
but thinking like that you can literally manifest your future by just thinking patterns over and over and over and over sounds like the very same lie that the serpent told Adam and Eve that you can be like God. God's the one that bends things to his will. We don't have that capacity. The truth is Satan doesn't care if you believe in him as God. He wins if you just believe you are God. His end goal is not to get you to draw a pentagram in your room and start doing weird chants and to hover and have your, like, climb walls. That's not it. What his end goal is, is to just make you believe that you're just a mistaker who needs a second chance. You're not a sinner who desperately needs a savior. And that you can control the outcomes of all your life, including your soul, by just being a good person, whatever it is. That's what he wants. That, that, that's how he wins. Not by you saying, you know, Bloody Mary in the mirror seven times. That, that's not it. If he, can, if he can just convince you that you don't actually need saving, that you're not actually that bad, that your fallen nature isn't actually that bad, it doesn't need to be redeemed, and that you're kind of the God over your life, he wins. But Paul here is teaching us, you are not God, you are not the solution to your problems, you are, you are the problems to your problems. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, he says. This body of death is this fallenness he's talking about here. And the image this would have conjured up in antiquity is this one, of ancient kings who would torture prisoners by shackling them to dead and decomposing corpses. That's crazy. Like, can you, like, that was an ancient torturing device that they would take prisoners who weren't prisoners of an as a severe crime, and the one person that actually did a severe crime, they would kill, then they would shackle this dead body to this living person to say, if you do not change, you will end up like the person you were shackled to. This is kind of the image that Paul's creating here. You have this body of death, but you simultaneously have one of life. And so for the believer, you carry around these, this fallenness. And I wish this wasn't the case. The Bible talks about that one day you and I will get a perfected, or the writer says glorified body. He redeems the fallenness over here so you no longer have this inward disposition to do things you know you shouldn't. And that's what heaven's going to be like. I don't know how he does it. I don't know. I, don't know, I just know when he does it. But in a way, what this image is saying about these decomposing bodies is that if you don't change, you're going to end up like this. Constantly choose the life over here or life in life abundantly will continue to die over here. And so Paul's kind of crying out here. He's saying, like, look, like, is there anyone that can save me? Is there anyone that can give me the freedom I so desperately want? Is there anyone that can give me the strength that I need to carry around this sin nature over here, yet deny it and choose God over here? And in verse 25, he says this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Two words I want to point out, the one through. It means that Paul sees Jesus standing between himself and God the Father, bridging the gap, providing the way to God the Father, like he said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no name given to mankind under heaven in which you can or must be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. Next word is Lord. Lord means Paul put Jesus in his right place as Lord and master over his life. We have this kind of like this saying around here is that if you want Jesus to change everything, you need to give him everything. At Seacoast, we say it this way, Jesus changes everything only if you put him over everything. That's how he changed. If it remains in your life and your hands, it's not going to change. If you give it over to God, God can change it. He continues and says, so then I, must, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Here's what he's teaching us here, that the same God that saved you is the same God that sanctifies you. Let me break this apart. What does the word sanctification mean? It's a churchy word. What does it mean? Sanctification is the process of becoming more like God. 
In Romans 8.29, to be conformed in the image of his son. It means that God is using all circumstances in your life as you give them over to him to grow you, to conform you, to mold and fashion and shape you into who he wants you to be. See, the truth is, none of us, you, you will not be who you will be when you meet God face to face one day. However, you should not be who you were when you first met him, however long ago that was. If we actually have a relationship with God and we lean into his power and not our own, our lives should be changing. Our lives should be changing. Why? Because God loves us so much that we can come to him as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us where we were. You know, um, right now, uh, uh, my daughter, she just turned one uh, two weeks ago, and we're trying to teach her to walk. And she does a good job standing up, but she can't really move. So she stands up. And maybe she puts like one foot forward and then like she like, you know, she like wobbles and falls like a drunk person, right? <laughs> and so I'll grab her hands and, and it's like, I'm going to, she's sleeping now, but normally I come home after work and it's one of the, we work on walking. We work on walking. I'll go on one side of the house and I just call her name, Noel, Noel, Noel. And she'll, she'll try to get up and she'll smile and she'll try to, and then she falls. And, and it's just this like, like this, this cute little exercise that we do when I get home. Now, can you imagine if you, if you saw me, maybe I, I brought my daughter here on a Sunday night and we were next door, we were walking and I was trying to get her to come crawl over to where the stage was or whatever it was. And, and you saw that she fell over there and you saw me get like really angry and I started yelling at her and she gets back up and she's wobbling and, 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 and she's mis- making mistakes and she's tripping over things. And, and you saw me start like screaming and getting angry at her for that. How silly and almost evil spirited would that be? I would never do that because she's learning to walk as a newborn. And as her father, I am patient in that process with her. What makes you think God the Father is going to be any different as you try to learn this whole thing of following Jesus Christ as well? Why do you think scripture gives us the idea of you being a newborn, being reborn. You enter in this new process of walking with God daily. And truth be told, you're going to wobble. You're not going to get at all of this right. You're still going to have parts of this life that's calling for you. Habits, addictions, patterns of thinking, whatever it may be. And so you're going to fall. If you were found in Jesus Christ which means you've given your life wholly over to him. You need to understand that you're not condemned because you mess up. Just as if I am patient with my daughter, God is patient, God the Father is patient with us. And so you may fall, you may even fall to your knees, don't stay there. Because in Christ, he always gives us the opportunity to get back up and walk closer and closer and closer and closer. I've shared this with you before. God doesn't ask for perfection from his children. Just I'm not asking my daughter to run a 5K. That'd be silly. Rather, I'm asking for progression for her as she gets back up and walks closer, gets back up and walks closer. That's the same thing God the Father asked of you. Not for perfection, but for progression. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening and have a blessed day.